All right. In this episode of the Social Currency Podcast, Tuck and I discuss our thoughts on Apple's recent worldwide developer conference. Announcements, privacy, and splintering of iTunes. I also asked Tuck why he is such an Apple fanboy. All right. Here we go with WWDC. Tuck, how are you? Hey, Jess. How are you? Should we talk news tonight? Get into Apple a little bit on the developer conference? So it's worth some good dialogue, right? Let's do it. All right, cool. So how do you want to do this? You want to give me some questions? Like, uh, just dive in. What do you want to do here? Well, uh, iOS 13, tell me what your thoughts are on that. Let's start there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think if you start out like, well, just to, sorry, worldwide developer conference, WWDC, if you guys see that, haven't known about it or follow it, it's, uh, it's Apple's main conference for the year where they talk about, um, primarily software. So the hardware announcements, um, uh, usually are reserved for different time periods, but sometimes they do introduce hardware here. It's a lot of more about the software and the developer side of it. So, um, so they, as you'll see with this and what we talk about, a lot of um, more around the software and the user experience around the software itself. Um, but because Apple is so hardware integrated, that um, they they kind of tie those two together, which is why we'll have some hardware pieces as well. So iOS 13. Back to what you asked for. Um, I I. You know, I think if you go back to when iPhone was introduced, this is when, you know, people started to become really fascinated with the next phase of Apple. And if you look at how transformative um, the iPhone's been for Apple's trajectory and not just, um, you know, not just them, but like how we as users engage with phones and the, the sort of dominance of and the rise of mobile really started with iPhone. And, um, you know... It, it cannot be overstated that every business ha- that has a phone has copied iPhone um, from the beginning and they were really the first ones out. And so, um, you know, now there's a, a bit of a debate on are they copying features and not are other groups copying from each other. But I think when you look back at original iOS, it was very innovative and it still continues to be, um, they invented the concept of the app store, they invented the concept of, um, you know, of iTunes obviously on the desktop and then moving it over here. Um, so many different, you know, pieces that came from what iPhone started and, and what Steve Jobs concepted um, have moved, you know, into uh, what we know as, as the iOS platform today into iPad and so forth. So iOS 13, um, tons going on here with privacy and, um, you know, and, and lots of different updates splitting apart iTunes and, and the rest of that. But I think the really cool thing for me, I'll do basic. It's dark mode. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a huge dark mode fan. And um, I use it on the desktop. I Every app that I have that I can, I put into dark mode. Um, you know, Twitter's a good one. If you have uh, if you have Twitter, you can put that on dark mode. Um, I just love how elegant things look. I love the reverse contrast. If you have an OLED screen and whether you have an iPhone or whatever, it actually helps reduce the power suck from your battery because it turns off the pixels that are not being used. So a little bit of benefit on that side, but I just love dark mode. It's awesome. And so, um, so, you know, I think that's a big piece of it. But um, if you look at the other features that are going into it, sign in with Apple, um, you know, Google, sign in with Google, sign in with Facebook have been around for a long time. Um, I think Apple finally realized, hey, we've got a massive platform with all the hardware we have out there with iPhone, with the Mac desktop, and they've been starting to integrate these more. And as they start to talk more about privacy, introduce a credit card, it really makes sense for them to have um, a sign in with Apple authorization. Um, and so you have this ID that um, that then you'll be able to start using sign in with Apple where they're actually maintaining your ID on your 
device and not actually transferring it, which is a huge boon for the privacy side. So, um, you know, the restrictions, I think, being different than the very open environments of Google and Facebook, where Apple is actually only allowing um, the collecting of email address uh, and or even randomizing the email address so that you can hide that from whoever you're sharing your login with, uh, which is, I think, a really interesting benefit if you're interested in that privacy side of things. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion about privacy um, this year, and we'll, we'll come back to that because um, that's kind of woven through a number of these announcements. But I agree with you on the dark mode. I, uh, I use it on my phone. I use it on Twitter. Um, I use it on Outlook at work. I, I yeah. love sort of the, again, the kind of like allowing your eyes to rest a bit. So it's funny, sometimes these, you know, these relatively simplistic or kind of aesthetic changes um, could potentially seem small. But, you know, if it's something that you're using every single day, hours of the day, and there's a, a change in the way that the UI looks, it makes a big difference. Yeah. You know, and even that the whole concept of the blue light and strain of the eyes to kind of what you said, like, uh, that helps with that. Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, pretty cool stuff. And that extends into iPad OS and, um, you know, iPad really started out as just like, Hey, let's make a big iPhone and, um, and go from there. But, you know, I think as they look at iPad sales stagnating, um, and then seeing, you know, what the potential of a tablet device could be, I think honestly with what Microsoft has done with Surface, um, I think they're playing a little bit of catch up on this one, but realizing that iPad could be a desktop replacement. And if you look at what, you know, most people do on a daily basis, they don't need heavy processing. They don't need, you know, what would be the, the premium um, of a MacBook Pro. It's fun to have one. It, it works really fast. But if you're just checking email, if you're just doing Netflix every day, you don't really need that level of sophistication. And yet iPad hasn't been able to kind of get there. You know, when you look at what they're introducing with this, I do think it becomes a viable laptop repra- replacement. And if for nothing of the fact that you'll be able to plug an external hard drive for the first time, that's a big deal, right? And so I think they're, they're starting to open up the platform and start to think, wow, what could this be? Um, you know, especially with iPad Pro as, uh, as a more significant player in replacing um, the desktop or, or the laptop space. So this is uh, the first OS for iPad, correct? Um, dedicated, yeah. I mean, so they've they used, a, obviously, uh, iOS and um, they've modified it over time so that it's a little more split with doing things like um, split screen and different features that are available only via iPad. Um, but I think it this is making it more of an established and set apart, um, you know, OS for uh, obviously dedicated to, yeah. uh, to the iPad itself. And, and this is interesting for, um, for me uh, on a couple levels. One, I'm curious just from a, a business perspective, what's in it for Apple to um, really tease out the iPad as a viable laptop replacement, you know, if they've got a healthy business from a Mac perspective, you know, why do, why do two? Um, so I'm curious kind of what the roadmap is there. Uh, I hear you on the surface kind of comparison and, you know, just having actually worked for Microsoft a few years back, you know, it's interesting to kind of see this transpire now um, because we certainly had many discussions, you know, inside the walls of, of Windows about um, the, the actual usage, you know, when you do market research, and again, this is a few years back, about how people were using their iPads. In many cases, it became something that was quickly handed to the kids. And um, a lot of the studies that we got back through various, you know, third-party market research showed that. And so it was um, kind of this like 
it's not a phone, it's not a full-blown computer, what, what is it? Is it just, again, absorbing and sort of leaning back, consuming, um, again, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, whatever it is, YouTube. And do you need a separate device for that when you got, you know, various other things in the house? Is it something to play games, again, for your kids when they go to dinner and you want to entertain them with a pair of headphones? And even personally, I've had an iPad, obviously, for a long time, as many of us had. And I, I frankly still haven't found my like sweet spot of when I, when I go to my iPad versus my phone or my, my MacBook. I don't know about you. Yeah. No, I'm the same way. And I think there's a lot of times where I want to pull it out and then I'm like, ah, but I got to send this email. I got to do this thing. I got to edit a podcast, right? Like whatever it is. And there's not an ability to do that on an iPad. So it does feel like, you know, candidly, it just ends up being like a doorstop, right? Or, or, a paperweight around the house. So I think this may be a little bit of experiment to f- see if they can fill the gap, right? Cause you got your iPhone for a lot of stuff. You've got, you know, the, the MacBook for more of that kind of dedicated usage. Maybe this becomes more of that interim product for, um, an intermediate user who is not a heavy, um, you know, they don't need dedicated software for anything specific. Um, uh, but that said, like they're bringing Photoshop over to iPad, right? They're looking, mm-hmm. Adobe is looking at dedicating more of those apps to the iPad platform, which is a big deal because then you'll actually be able to do true platform, um, you know, device uh, software engagements uh, versus just kind of that like app, like making mm-hmm. an iPhone app bigger, um, which mm-hmm. there's a lot more limited functionality. So I think it's a good step for them. I think it's a, it could be a little bit of experiment, but it's sort of like, why not? They've explored the space. iPad sales are tailing. They're not really growing. I mean, like you, like me, I've had my iPad for like four years. There's no reason to update it. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think there's a good opportunity for here for them to see if they can expand the space just by making it more functional. Yeah. Yeah. So for sure, watch this space on, on the future of, of iPad. Um, so, so good segue, you know, speaking about kind of splitting things out within the broader Apple ecosystem, another announcement, um, which, um, which sent, you know, sort of waves through the tech industry was the, you know, the sunsetting, if you will, of iTunes. And really what that means is simply splitting iTunes into three smaller, more specific categories. So now there is Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, and Apple TV. Um, and it's funny from a podcasting perspective, um, this kind of clears things up, which is nice because I even just describing where to find our podcast as an example, I would often find myself sort of, um, you know, toggling between saying on iTunes or on Apple podcasts. And, you know, it was confusing where people should go to actually get podcasts, um, on iOS. So I think they're kind of clearly making a break and trying to be more uh, specific about, these three different usages across music podcasts and, um, and TV. And then the other thing that was kind of along with that announcement was uh, what they referred to as project catalyst, which is a bit more focused and understandably. So this is meant to be a developers conference, but focused on the developer community um, around the, um, the ease with which um, we can port an iPad app to a Mac. And again, I remember from my days back at Microsoft that just the, the fact that you would have completely different ecosystems from um, a PC perspective to a phone perspective. And then even you get into things like Xbox with gaming and it just became incredibly complex. You can imagine as a developer. So this seemed like a big win from a, um, uh, that audience's perspective. Yeah. And, you know, I think if you go back to your comment that everyone uh, kind of, uh, recoiled uh, in surprise that iTunes is going away. You know, they've sort of been predicting this for a while. I think the big deal here 
you know, if we just take a moment to kind of put the tombstone, the, the rest in peace on this one, um, if you go back, right, like, do you remember like where this started? There was CDs, people were ripping CDs on an Napster. There was no real authority in this space to say this is a legit way to get digital music. Um, there was a couple different things, but no one was really establishing an ecosystem. And Apple invented it, right? They came up with iTunes and it was like the first time you could buy a song for 99 cents or an album for 9.99. And it was such yep. a revolutionary model that has really taken, I would say digital content as a whole, right? Because like, like when I was at, at Disney, it was around this time when this was going on and you look at where content was going and some of it was going free streaming um, a little bit after this. And there wasn't really a way for the monetization of, you know, content itself. And so I think this is super exciting to kind of see where that started, the the space that it built, because there wasn't really that that concept of digital content. And then the reason why they broke it apart, it just got bloated, right? They're just like, okay, well, let's put TV in here. Let's put movies yep. in here. Now we've got podcasts. Let's add that. And so iTunes itself became super unwieldy. Whereas on our phones, it's easy because it's all separate. So they're like, okay, let's do that. So, you know, they pulled it apart. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think it's kind of sad to see the, quote, end of an era as it was, especially since this was the transformative tool that took us from physical media music, um, as cool as that was, into the digital times. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, I, I haven't worked in the music industry per se. And it sounds like, you know, Disney, you, you know, being in the entertainment space, you probably were uh, closer to it in, in some ways. But, you know, obviously iTunes blew blew up kind of traditional, quote, album sales, right? And the idea of buying anything physical, you know, on a CD. And I remember there just being so much discussion for years when that first started to happen of like, you know, record stores are going to go away, uh, you know, Tower Records is, yeah. is you know, like going Tower bankrupt. Closing, right? Like Blockbuster right? Warehouse, like all these places that used to sell CDs. Yeah. And even though you could only, I, I don't know how many at that point, but I, I'm sure, you know, it was very few songs you could actually um uh, hold on your phone in the beginning, you still could do it. You could take digital music with you. And that was such a revolution. So I, I agree. It's like, it's almost kind of like, it's, it's probably about time to kind of refresh and, and, you know, reorganize iTunes considering the longevity it's had. Yeah. And I think the other thing to note too, is you think about like iTunes started, that's really what created the platform for iPod to exist because that was where you put your digital music to take it with you. Yep. And then iPod became iPhone. And so, you know, that's, that's, you watch that path and kind of tying it all to pieces. It's sort of how it all came together, which is really cool to, to kind of see that. But, um, but yeah, definitely. Well, and pod, podcasts, right? We've talked about this, like yeah, the, where I mean, podcasts. Pod, the pod is from podcast. Yeah. Absolutely. It's from an iPod. Yeah. yeah. It all kind of started there for sure. Yeah. Pretty cool. All right. How about, how about their, their fancy schmancy expensive new computer? You want to talk about that and tell me if you think it's uh, worth the price tag? Yeah, I think, well, I would say, is it worth the price tag? I don't know. I mean, this is for definitely for super, super users. Um, so at spec, when you get the base model, it's definitely not what they presented. You can upgrade it. But I think I saw that the top upgrade, if you put everything into it that they displayed was about $50,000. And most people aren't going <laughs> to put that wow. into a desktop, much less this uh, 6K TV that their display monitor that they introduced with it. Um, which doesn't even come with a stand, by the way, which is kind of amusing. Um, <laughs> but, awesome. uh, but yeah, no, I, I think this was, honestly, I feel like this was a PR 
uh, element of the show because the last Mac Pro they introduced was terrible. This thing, it looked like a little trash can um, and uh, it's sort of like a bigger HomePod shape. And it was, it was just a, a terrible computer. It didn't cool right. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't built for strength. It was built for presentation. And, uh, and so I think they came back and were like, okay, we heard you. Now we built a legit computer again. So for the few people that use it, they'll you know, find it amazing. I remember having a Mac Pro. I had actually two Mac Pros um, coming up when I was doing a lot more graphic design and video editing. And these were beasts. I mean, they're awesome machines. So it's, I, I think it's cool to see it back in a similar shape to what they used to be. Um, but now, you know, I think uh, for most users, this is either out of reach and or they don't have much use for it. It's definitely for a very specific audience. Yeah, I, I hear you on kind of, was it a, a quote unquote PR stunt? There was a lot of coverage that I saw and discussion around the whole cheese grater analogy and sort of the aesthetic. Um, and I do wonder if, you know, again, just from a hardware perspective, if that was part of the play. Yeah. But if you saw, like, I don't saw the animation. It's really cool. Like, they built sort of the way it is because there's a ton of function to it. So it's easily easy to swap everything in and out. And, you know, I, w- I go back to the days where my dad and I would use to comb computer stores for, like, you know, uh, boards and the rest of that to actually build out custom computers. We had a little side hustle back when I was in college of building out computers for people, which was super fun. That's, that's um, awesome. I didn't know that. No, nah, I don't, I actually just recalled that right now. We did it for like a year and we would go like scrape uh, parts from used computer stores and we would build out, you know, desktop boxes that were to spec for people looking for stuff. So it was pretty cool. Um, and, uh, so I used to, and like, I can see that part of it because this is so elegant that you can just like pull it up and punch in mm-hmm. like different, you know, specs that you need and then pop it back in. And there's no, you don't have to like sit there with a Phillips screwdriver for three hours trying to put everything back together. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, I, for sure. I appreciated the kind of industrial design of it. And again, knowing that the, the core audience for this um, conference are developers. And again, folks that probably are more inclined to do things like that, to actually, whether it's write code or build a computer, sort of care about, you know, what's behind the scenes. Um, perhaps this was, you know, the right thing to launch with this audience and, and it looked kind yeah. of cool too. And this will go into like making Toy Story 5, right? Because like these are the computers that go into uh, Pixar, Industrial Light and Magic, like high-end yeah. production studios where they're doing incredible amount of processing to, um, you know, gaming, um, you know, gaming companies, the rest of that. So uh, again, it's for a specific audience, but I think it's going to be a better benefit than what they had off of the last one. Yep. Um, so another thing they talked about was the Apple Watch OS and the launch of an app store for the watch itself. Um, so meaning it can run apps, you know, on the watch without having to be tethered uh, to an iPhone, which, you know, it's pretty important, right? Because not everyone has an iPhone. And obviously this kind of paves the way for, you know, Android users down the road if they wanted to have um, an Apple Watch but have an Android phone, perhaps for them to, to work independently. Um, or, you know, frankly, even if you want to go for a run without your phone and you want your watch just to work. Um, so this was talked about again in that similar light of sort of teasing out separate ecosystems, um, and, and allowing there to be not just an OS for the iPad, but an OS for the watch. Um, and there's some specific discussions around a few health tools like noise monitoring and, uh, apparently even menstrual cycle tracking, which is interesting. Uh, and I can yeah. see helpful, um, voice recorder. Um, and I think this is comical. Like there was a bunch of discussion about it, having a calculator, which is 
awesome that that's a topic of discussion um, and excitement. So in some ways, it kind of made me chuckle because it was such a, to me, a statement of like the power of, of Apple's brand that people will get excited about a, a calculator on your watch. Did you ever have a calculator watch? One of those Casio ones? Remember that? For sure. Those are legit. For sure. What was that like? Second grade. Um, and those are coming back, right? That That's the 80s. It's all coming yeah, back. Yeah, they still sell them and they're exactly the same, which is so cool. And now you can get on your, you know, you can pay $400 more for uh, a fancy Apple Watch that has one on it, I guess. Um, I wonder if the face actually looks like the Casio one. They should have done that. Um, you know, I think you asked me about being a fanboy. Yes. Like I've bought everything Apple forever. Um, I have been a Mac user for probably at least 17 years um, doing graphic design on the original one. I had like an iMac when it was the cute color one, Mac Pros, uh, MacBooks, MacBook Pros, um, every iPhone. Um, I got the Apple Watch when it first came out because why wouldn't you? This is so cool. Apple came out with a watch. That thing was terrible. I mean... Oh, it had like three things that it did. And I was like, you know, I, I'm not into this. Maybe I'm going to wait till it develops a little bit further. So Apple Watch 2, Apple Watch 3, me, Apple Watch 4. So I finally like was like, okay, maybe I'll get off the Fitbit and try Apple Watch. This thing is finally at par. Like I, I feel like this is a game changer in terms of what watches do. You can see why Apple's actually moved up in terms of being the number one watch seller in the world with the Apple Watch because the health functions alone, the incredible utility that it now has. Like I can just touch my watch face and Shazam picks up the song that I'm like hearing right now, right? Tracking all your workouts, reminders are built in, Siri's awesome. I can open up my MacBook and it automatically unlocks with my watch. Um, so there's just like so many things that are integrating it with now. And I think the health thing is a really big deal because they're advancing um, the health tracking to a level that no one else can keep up with. Like, the, like Fitbit, um, you know, any of the Samsung or Google watches are not at this level. And, um, you know, coming from an industry that's focused in, in, in health and wellness and, um, and especially medical, um, like this is really interesting because that is such a, and going to become such a high focus for us as humans to understand our health better and helping everything from, you know, just reducing the need for as much care or being more proactive with your care and understanding what to do with it. This is that, right? Like this is the, the piece that's attached to you and knows you most intimately because it is literally tracking you at all times. Um, so that's what's cool about it, right? Like there's so many pieces of that, whether it's like the EKG or the fall drop monitor where it alerts 911 if you fall and don't respond. Um, you know, menstrual cycle tracking, that's actually important for, you know, many women who are looking, you know, to, to kind of make sure that that's available. So I think um, noise monitoring, another big one, like you're hearing about millennials having hearing problems because of whatever they're doing. Like that's, that's kind of interesting too. So um yeah, I think I think it's finally yeah. in the spot where it's this is viable, and I think they're separating it out now as its own platform, just like they're separating iPad out its own platform, so they can make it standalone, and then it becomes really interesting as its own device. Because then, by the way, Android users can use it, and more people have accessibility for it, and the apps can you know have much more utility because they can stand alone within the watch versus having to be tethered to the phone. Yeah, agreed. It's a great point about the health piece. And and you're right. I mean, there's there's definitely been over the last decade, but even the last five years, such a surge in our interest in tracking all things related to our body. You know, obviously pedometers have been around for quite mm. some time, but um, you know, heart rate monitor, I like I know when I work out, I wear a heart rate monitor and and it's yeah. always funny because it's like, I don't know 
I don't know if it actually makes me push harder. It probably does in certain circumstances where if I know I usually get a certain calorie count or a certain amount of burn and I'm lower than that and I'm halfway through the class, I might kind of, you know, hit the up arrow on the treadmill a little bit to make my typical goal. So there's probably a little bit of incentive there. Um, but it's, I think a lot of people just sort of enjoy the fun of tracking, you know, like just seeing the numbers day after day and having the benchmark and then, you know, kind of just maybe it's the nerd in us that enjoys, um, you know, th that aspect of our jobs. Also, you enjoy that aspect of seeing what's going on with your body. I mean, we, we track how yeah, much that's a good point. sleep is a yeah. big thing. I know, you know, how much sleep did you get? What was the quality sleep? And anyway, um, I think it's still pretty early days, but to your point about, you know, the, the industry that you're in, um, I know there's already incentives at a lot of companies to do various things proactively to get ahead of it with your health. Um, I, I could see there being, you know, hey, half off or even we'll pay for, you know, uh, an Apple Watch if it allows you to track various health things, um, triggers, monitors, so that, again, you're not going to the doctor as often and you're staying at a healthy weight or whatever it is that your goals are. So maybe this stuff will actually be, become integrated with our, our health insurance uh, in the near future. I think it's, I think it's sooner than we think. So, um, I feel like it's sort of like the progressive snapshot where, um, you know, they they put the little device in your car to see how you're driving and they give you credit back in your insurance on that. This is, I think the same thing. So United healthcare actually gives you, they did a pilot this year that I haven't expanded fully yet. Cause I didn't get one. Uh, and I have United healthcare, but, um, you know, healthcare gave Apple watches, Apple watch fours to a bunch of, you know, of those who are insured by them and they gave it to you free. And the only stipulation was that you had to do basically 10,000 steps or something like that per day to earn it back. So if you did that every day, you earned a portion back and over a year, you basically earn the cost of your watch if you did, you know, a certain amount of activity per week. So that's genius. That's what I think the first stage, right? It's not quite to the point of you've got a full connection point where you're passing data to the insurance company and there's probably some interesting you know, rules about that from a HIPAA perspective and, and yeah. whatnot in terms of where that actually goes. But I think at least in terms of them understanding your activity to note that like, at least you're doing something like walking, um, burning a certain X amount of calories that get counted that they can give you credit for that. I think that's really cool. Yeah. And by the way, I have United Healthcare. I want that. Yeah, I know. I didn't get one either. Were we not part of the pilot program? <laughs> How come we didn't find out about this? <laughs> Um, cool. Okay. Well, so the last big theme that we've kind of just dabbled in a little bit, but maybe we'll kind of, we'll kind of, um, you know, go a bit deeper is, is privacy. This came up in a lot of the announcements. And so, um, I don't know, Tuck, if you want to kick us off with kind of what your take was on Apple's sort of big push into, um, privacy. Yeah. Apple's always positioned themselves differently than the other, I'd say, big tech players. And I think a lot of it is because they're a hardware company. And so they're not out here to make money off of advertising like Google and Facebook are. They don't have any way for you to, say, take a customer list and put that information there and go find someone off wherever they are. There's not that risk of someone attacking the platform and then stealing a bunch of email addresses or photos or anything like that, um, just because it's the nature of it's much different. It's you know, in most cases with Apple, it's locally stored in your phone and or they're finding ways to create interference through, um, you know, tokens and other randomization like we talked about for um, uh, for Apple Pay and um, and then this new auth with signing with Apple. Um, they're really focusing their 
message um, about iPhone, uh, a trust-based platform, and that you want to use them because they're not one of these companies like Google, which is Android, right? Um, and or Facebook, which are selling your data and or providing access to be able to sell uh, or have others sell uh, that data. So, um, so I think this is a big play for them. They're obviously tightening this up for, I think, a couple of reasons. One, the Apple credit card's coming. Two, you've got signing off with Apple. You've got Face ID, which is intended to be super secure and, and protect. And, and then really treating the device as the platform for um, handling your identity versus having your identity float around in um, unsafe and, and potentially open networks. Yeah. And, you know, I was, as you're just talking, I was recalling at CES, um, so the Consumer Electronics Show, which is a big tech industry event in Las Vegas every January. And at CES, um, in years past, you know, there's some out of home that Apple ran that got some press and uh, the headline read, what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone and had the URL apple.com slash privacy. And so, they were capitalizing, um, you know, uh, in years past already on their positioning to your point about being um, ahead of the curve when it comes to privacy. And again, part of the way in which Apple has been able to do that is because they are so vertically integrated, which is, you know, kind of a fancy way of saying that they are um, building and or responsible for many pieces of the software and hardware stack across some of these devices we were just talking about, the operating systems, things like iTunes. So um, many companies are not able or just haven't had that business model um, to, to be so vertical, but because Apple has been, it's much easier to sort of lock it down. You know, kind of people use the term walled garden often. So good and bad uh, for sure to that. But one of, one of the pros, especially in, you know, the era of 2019 and all these security breaches, which we've talked about in, in past episodes that have been happening with Facebook and Google, um, it's less likely within the Apple ecosystem. And, and they know that. And I think they're really smart to, again, capitalize and leverage on what actually is just, a, it's just a truth. I mean, it really is something that Apple's always um, uh, had as a kind of a fundamental tenet of their, of their um, approach. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you think about it, I, I feel this, right. This is actually a feeling I have is that I would never get another phone other than iPhone because I know that, my information is secure here, which versus when like, if I had, and I thought about it, right? Like if I had a pixel or some other type of Samsung, like where's my information going? There's not a business model uh, challenge with, you know, like a Google who's sitting there saying like, what do I do with this person's information? Because if I make it available for someone, even anonymized way or somehow, right? Like I can make money off of that versus Apple's like, right. we can't make money off of this. So why would we do ever anything like that? And so um, as a marketer, I absolutely love Google and Facebook's model because they're massive ad targeting networks that have so much data available. You can get very deep and reach people in a different way. Um, Apple's not like that. And so it's, it's, you know, as a consumer, I like the Apple platform. Um, I'm happy to use Google and Facebook all day for, for marketing purposes, honestly, yeah. um, for literally the opposite reason. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there was even a quote that came from Apple, one of Apple's SVPs, um, SVP of software engineering, uh, Craig Federey, and he said, we believe privacy is a fundamental human right and we engineer it into everything we do. Um, so again, you can hear in the language there that there is a, um, a, a very heightened awareness of sort of the societal concern that's, that's really uh, risen in the last year or two, this notion of it being a fundamental human right. So um, it, 
it, again, from a marketing perspective and a product perspective, I think it's super smart to capitalize on that. And again, leverage something that's probably already been woven through their product design from the start. Um, and, uh, and I'm curious to see kind of what's to come. I mean, again, the ability to be able to have a single sign on with, you know, with Apple. And then again, as we talked at the top of the episode, sort of the, the randomizing emails, something like that, it seems so simple, but it's, it's a pretty clean way to not get spammed and not have your email show up in random places. And then, you know, you're, before you know it, you're getting robocalls and you're not even sure why, and it, it, you, you can't disentangle how those things even happened. Um, so all those small things really add up to feeling um, secure and private and like things are locked down, which is great for them as a company. Uh, so let's get real practical this one in the marketing side. So I think the real risk here is if, if you're someone who's thinking about like, how do I think about this? Someone who has a media budget and is purchasing media to go after this, this gets complex, right? Because if you're looking at the mobile ecosystem, many users are on iOS, right? If you start to limit a lot of these different things, it creates a more difficult issue. So right now, um, when I'm looking at Safari users, uh, there's a tracking issue that we have with reaching Safari users. And it's it's more complex because of the privacy restrictions and the ad blocking pieces that are available natively as part of Safari, right? So when you're doing a mobile buy, which by the way, majority of people are coming through mobile now um, in, in any business, uh, you're looking at that as a is like a, hmm, do we lose tracking? Like what's their attribution? How is that being affected mm-hmm. by what Apple's doing? Part of their announcements here were about location tracking. So they're going to start making right. it very difficult for people to find your and understand your location. Google's all about location. Like they'll triangulate you all day. Apple's actually going to make it very difficult for apps to even touch it, much less um, even be able to ask for it. And they're going to ask for it on a use case by use case basis where you go in and mm-hmm. use the app for something. Um, as opposed to having it as an always on feature. So when you think about, you know, something that's proactive, whether it's ad targeting or something that's notification based or local, you know, uh, even geofencing, um, that may be really difficult for any iOS user going, you know, past iOS 13, because it's not going to allow you to be triangulated by a Wi-Fi network and, you know, your phone's GPS and the rest of these, because it's just not going to be available. So I think that's where, you know, you might see some differentiation start to happen where um, in some ways they actually may be pushing more, you know, people to be using Google and Facebook for some of these things. But either way, it's going to be more limited because you're still not going to be able to get that data even through those partners as well. So locations Mm -hmm. can become a more difficult part of it as they institute more of this privacy regulation on the device itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. And, and I think it's also important to remember, again, we talk a lot about mobile and how um, from an advertising perspective, you know, clearly all, all, all of the sites and all of our traffic is, is, you know, more than 50%, right. It's leaning toward mobile, not desktop in, in today's era. And so we want to optimize for that. But when you look at the global penetration, again, of iOS versus Android, Android is still the lion's share. And it's really easy to forget that in the U S and especially perhaps being near a big city, perhaps being on the West Coast, it, it, you know, it feels like everywhere you go, everyone has an iPhone, but the numbers, you know, are different. It's, it's over two thirds that have Android across the globe. So um, the devices still lean toward Android and, and, and it'd be interesting just to see again, how that shifts or not over the next coming years, to your point, if um, the privacy piece becomes um, harder for developers to actually create 
uh, for for the Apple platform. Yeah, this is probably like the anti-China business plan, right? Like they're trying to penetrate China and they're going in with these all these privacy pieces that are probably the antithesis of what China actually wants to be tracking, right? Um, so they're going to be all in on Android. Uh, but I think... Um, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Like it, it, if you're from a global perspective, it may not be as, as impacting. Um, but I think, you know, the other side of it is that this kind of play does put pressure on the other providers. When you look at what governments are starting to do between GDPR, the California Privacy Act, which is the new regulation, which is coming out, which is even more aggressive than GDPR, um, those things are already starting to happen. So in some ways, Google are, you know, and Facebook are going to have to start thinking really critically and, and paying less lip service to it and, and starting to put more action where they're saying that because Apple's actually doing it and some of it may be anticipating that these are things are coming anyway. Uh, but you don't see that same type of motivation from Google and Facebook yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And again, there's been a lot of discussion. I know Kara Swisher um, talks quite a bit about sort of this regulation and we've touched on it too of the tech industry. And so it's a good point, you know, perhaps Apple is, again, it was maybe already in their DNA, if you will, to be kind of that walled garden, that vertical system anyway, which lends itself to privacy. Um, But then perhaps anticipating some regulatory um, measures from the federal government uh, coming down the pike, trying to get a bit ahead of that and kind of self-regulate. And um, that's a big discussion right now in the tech industry is should tech companies, should you know these large, large conglomerates like Google and Facebook and Amazon, Microsoft, et cetera, should they just self-regulate and just do the right thing and when they have a, a problem, correct it? Um, or should the government step in and actually put firm guidelines about things like privacy? Um, so, you know, TBD, Again, on on how um, you know who who goes first, but maybe Apple is trying to get ahead and anticipate that and sort of take care of their own business, if you will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. Um, we've covered a lot. Again, there's uh, uh, always a lot of fun stuff to discuss when it comes to one of these events because again, it touches software, hardware, and kind of bleeds nicely into the broader zeitgeist of the tech industry, which is, which is fun. And, um, I know again that you've, you've been a long, a long standing fan of Apple and, um, it's always fun to kind of get your point of view on what they're doing well and and where they can improve. Um, any final thoughts on the announcements that we heard? Yeah, you know, I think overall, I don't think they're flawless uh, for sure. And there's there's times that the, the, the Apple devices drive me crazy. I think the big thing for me, and this is for any business, right? Is like everyone talks about customer experience and making that part of it. Apple day one has always been about customer experience. And that's why they're so dedicated to making sure that the hardware and the software work together so seamlessly. And no one else really does that at the level that Apple does. And you know, looking at the announcements here and the fact that WD, you know, WWDC is all about um, mostly software and then some hardware, it is exciting for me to see that they're starting to evolve each of these independent platforms and yet still from the same ethos um, of how they're all working together. And as much as they're starting to separate them, they're actually pulling together in a much more interesting way that is evolving um, each of the individual device platforms in a way that still makes them uh, unique enough to have to own each one of them, which is part of the strategy. Mm -hmm. Right. It all comes down to money at the end. (laughs) That's right. You still need everything and I still will buy everything. Yes. And every year when you upgrade (laughs) it, I will buy another one. That's right. September's coming. for new iPhone. All right, you guys, uh, Social Currencies and Marketing Podcast it covers the hottest digital and social media marketing topics that matter for your business strategy now. I'm Tuck Ross. 
and you've been talking with Jessica Jensen. If you want more Social Currency, go to socialcurrencyshow.com and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also um, hear from us directly by signing up for our weekly newsletter at info at socialcurrencyshow.com. And of course, find us on Twitter at Tuck Ross or at Jessica K. Jensen. We really appreciate you guys listening. Thank you for joining us and digging in about Apple's latest announcements and what's coming this fall for everything that Apple's up to. Jess, so good talking to you. Bye, Tuck. Bye, everyone. Bye.